we're kicking off a new sermon series this week. And um, does anybody, it's related to it, but does anybody remember those WWJD bracelets that, that we wore in the 90s? Does any, anyone? Um, if you're a Christian back in the 90s, it was the thing to do. I, I, had, uh, I had two different colors. They were, they were the woven ones because I was classy. And uh, they say WWJD on them, which stands for what would Jesus do? And uh, the whole point of it was that you're to, to wear it as a reminder on your wrist so that when you come into a situation, maybe it's a difficult situation or just something's going on in your life, you look down and you think, what would Jesus do in this situation? Now, back in high school when I wore that, um, I, I don't know, I kind of liked it. it. It was more of a thing of just like wearing a cross or a Christian t-shirt. It was kind of a way of identifying as a Christian. But um, I've always, I've struggled with this question. And it's not necessarily because it's a bad question, but because I think that the answer seems to be subjective to the person asking it. So, so if I look at it, I'm like, well, what would Jesus do in this situation? My answer might be different than maybe your answer, given, given the situation. Um, and so we, we kind of struggle with this, that it was never really tied to uh, a, a biblical like truth or a scripture or anything like that. It was just kind of like, I don't know, given my extreme circumstances, um, what, what would Jesus do in this situation? It was just, if I were Jesus, what would I do? That was kind of more of the question that I asked. Or if Jesus were me, what would he do? And so the problem that really, this is the, this is the crux of this problem. The problem is that I find that most of us feel like our situations are exceptions to the rule, don't we? Like, like I know that Jesus says, like, you know, to turn the other cheek, but he, he's never met my mother-in-law, you know? Like, or uh, I, know that, I know that Jesus says not to, like, gossip, but he's never had a boss like me. Like, if he'd had a boss like me, he wouldn't be saying stupid things like don't gossip because there's things that, that need to be said. And so what ends up happening we kind of follow this, this line of thinking all the way down that we end up picking and choosing that which we think Jesus would do given our incredible circumstances. As if our circumstances are somehow bigger, different, or the exception to the rule. This is, this is why I struggle with this question. Because if we follow this, this line of thinking, this way of this behavior, even though we, we may call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, many people never actually do what Jesus did, talk like Jesus talked, or love like Jesus loved. And we get to this place, if we're not careful, we end up numbing ourselves in our disobedience. In other words, thinking that this idea that, that, that we may, that we, it's essentially this, we numb ourselves into disobedience with the idea that God wants us to just be mostly Christian. I'm mostly Christian. Are you Christian today? Mostly. This morning I wasn't, but today I am. I wasn't when I first woke up, but I'm mostly Christian. And we kind of sort of get into this place where we think that our, our partial obedience to God will outweigh our disobedience to God. I don't know if you've, if you've ever thought like this, you've probably, I'm the only sinner in here. So like, but I, I sometimes get to this place where I think that like God works with this kind of equity, right? This, these balancing scales. And then um, the, the good things that I do, the partial obedience that I choose to do somehow weighs more than my disobedience to what it is that I know I should be doing, right? So let me, let me say, so I came to church this morning. You're welcome, Jesus. It's cold out. You're welcome, Jesus, right? 
I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't swear when that guy cut me off this morning uh, on the road. You're welcome, Jesus. I, I didn't have anything nice to say, so uh, I didn't say anything at all. You're welcome, Jesus. And we get to this place that we, where we start to focus on being mostly Christian as if our obedience in some things outweighs our disobedience in other things. And this is kind of the crux of what I, I want to communicate today is that Jesus did not come, die on a cross, and be raised from the dead so that you can be a nice person. He came, died, and rose from the dead so that you can become a new person. And when we continually focus on the WWJD question of like, well, what would Jesus do in this situation? And then, okay, I think this is probably what he would do, and I'm going to do that as if you're welcome, Jesus then we end up thinking that Jesus came, died, so that we would just do good deeds or be a nice person when he actually came to change us from the inside out. Amen? To be a new person. And so I was thinking about this the past few weeks, and I was, uh, I I was wondering this, like this question, what if we flipped that question on its head? Like what if we didn't ask this question? What if we asked a different question? And so the question is this, what would Jesus undo? What would Jesus undo I, I think that that is an intriguing question. That is a question that, that, it, that is not subjective to my version of Jesus, where you think Jesus would do this and I think Jesus would do that. It's not subjective to, to my emotions that would maybe lead me down a path of thinking that, that my situation is so extreme and so different that it's an exception to the rule. I understand that, that this is what the Word of God says, but, but what would Jesus do? So I, I think he would do this given my extreme circumstances or the person that I'm actually dealing with. What would Jesus undo, I think, is a much better question. In fact, I was so excited. I have to let you know this. I actually ordered, and they didn't come in, WWJU bracelets for everyone. <laughs> They're supposed to come in on Saturday. They're coming in on Monday. So next week, you got to come next week, though. Everybody gets a WWJU bracelet. That's right. You get a bracelet. You get a bracelet. You get a bracelet. You get a bracelet. We'll go all Oprah. We'll put them underneath. Reach underneath your seats, right? And we'll pull them out. It's going to be awesome. I'm so excited about it. You guys are going to all have WWJU bracelets and be able to show them off proudly. And people will be like, what in the world does that mean? You can tell them all about what would Jesus undo. So next week, you got to come. We'll have them available. We'll be passing them out, and people will be freaking out. It'll, it'll, go, it'll go crazy. Um, WWJU, what would Jesus undo is a great question. It's a great question for me because here's why it's a great question for me. Because I think many times that the way that I grow in God is by adding knowledge, by, by learning more about Scripture, by, by, by getting more information. But what I've found what's really truly happened in my life is that the things that, that often cause me and stunt me from growth is my unwillingness to unlearn things in my life. Is my unwillingness to allow God to remove things that are blocking my relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not that we need more sermons, really and truly, and, and I'm a preacher, so I know this. Like We, we have, in, especially in our American Christianity, we've heard so many sermons, we just actually need to start applying some of them. It's not that we need more information. It's not that we need, oh man, if you just preach on this, Pastor Justin, that would fix all of my problems. It's, that, it's this unwillingness to allow God to remove something so that he can shine brighter in us. So this is why this question is so interesting to me. Why, what would Jesus undo? 
What would he undo? And so this sent me on like a hunting expedition, like a research like project over the past couple of weeks. And so I've been, I've been searching. Um, I, I searched through the words of Jesus as he challenged the religious leaders of his day, as he talked to the Pharisees. What would he undo in that early, early church? I searched through the words of Jesus as he was uh, writing to the, uh, the seven churches in the book of, of Revelation. What would he undo in those churches? And, uh, and I'll just let you know, what I found is that Jesus is actually very clear about what he would undo in our lives. It's not a mystery. <laughs> it's actually not even really up for that much debate because he's very serious. And in fact, he talks about the same things over and over and over and over and over again all throughout Scripture. What would Jesus undo in you? So, over the next few weeks, we're going to essentially kind of be looking through the actual words of Jesus as he speaks to individuals and church leaders and, and churches as a whole about what would he undo if he were you? What would Jesus undo? And you may be a little surprised. You may be a little shocked at some of the things that, that Jesus is really passionate about that you're, you kind of brush aside. And you may also be really surprised at some of the things that you're really passionate about that it's surprising that he just doesn't care about as much as you do. Well, he should. Well, at least Jesus. He can do what he wants, right? What would Jesus undo? So I would love for you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. And um, as we get started, I, I just want to warn you that uh, I think God's in this because um, Everywhere from our, our, our men's morning prayer at 5.30 this morning to, to our, our 7.25 prayer, prayer meeting we have right here, just preparing for the morning with all of our, with all of our leaders and volunteers, um, God was sharing literally the exact same thing through multiple different people, down to the exact same scripture that we're about to read. So I just want to warn you, even if you don't like this, don't hate me, okay? I'm just the messenger, but I know that, I know that God has something for us, for us, us as, as a church, and, and hopefully for you individually. Um, Revelation chapter 3, Jesus addresses seven churches in the book of Revelation. Uh, he brings encouragement to them if he can, and then he tells them what he would undo in them, essentially, all throughout Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. And this week we're going to look at the church in Laodicea. You may have heard of this church of Laodicea. Maybe you've read this before. Um, but I want to give you just a little bit of a background information because I believe that the understanding of this city at this time period will help you um, understand why Jesus spoke to them the way that he did. So as you're turning to Revelation chapter 3, I want to let you know that Laodicea was known for four things. The first thing in this day and time it was known for was their wealth. They were incredibly prosperous. This city was rich as if it, as, like they had, they were flush with money. They were at the intersection of some major trade routes like the Silk Road. They were the second largest banking center in Asia at this time. They had money upon money upon money. They were so rich that history says that in 60 AD, 60 AD, they suffered a huge earthquake that left 70% of their city in rubble. 70%. The whole place was just kind of like completely decimated. And they refused to accept help from Rome, like all the other cities around them did. They said, no, we can do it on our own. They literally rebuilt better than before with their own money. So they were that rich. They were wealthy. So the first thing they're known was for their wealth. The second thing they're known for is health. They had people coming from all around to, uh, to come to kind of like, at that day, like a world-class health center. 
specifically for eye problems, eye issues. Uh, they had doctors and people that uh, had invented an eye salve, like an ointment, that people would be able to come, buy, put on their eyes, and it would help them to be able to see better. So the rich people from all around were coming to Laodicea for health reasons, to, especially for their, their eye issues. The third thing that they're known for is their wool. They were kind of uh, known, they were kind of like Macy's, right? I mean, they, they had all kinds of clothing. Their wool, their, the sheep that, um, that grew up in that region for some reason had very soft wool. And it came in kind of an odd color. It was like a dark purple or almost a black color. And it, the, the royalty loved it. So people would come from all around and everybody wanted some designer Laodicean wool. I mean, they just loved it. So they came from all over the place. So they were known for their wealth, their health, their wool. Those are three good things. But they're also known for one thing that wasn't so good. And it was this. They had no good drinking water. No good drinking water. All these other things that were going on. They were like Macy's and Mayo Clinic and Bank of America all in one. And, and, they, and they didn't have any good drinking water, and so they had to pipe it in through aqueducts back in the day from like two different places that were nearby. So there was Heropolis from the west, they would pipe it in from these mineral hot springs, and they had hot water in Heropolis, and it would come down through the aqueducts, through all those miles of aqueducts to get to Laodicea, but by the time it got there, it was like lukewarm, gross, kind of just, it wasn't hot, it was just lukewarm and it came in and it tasted like minerals so that makes it even worse right it just it just did not taste good and then they had Colossae in the east Colossae had cold water these natural cold water springs and so they would pipe that in and it would come in by the time it got to Laodicea it too was tepid it was just lukewarm not really that good so you could get all kinds of things like there was money there was clothes, there was health care, all kinds of great things. But the one thing you couldn't get in Laodicea was a nice, refreshing drink of water. So, health, wealth, wool, and water. Why don't you stand with me? We're going to read Revelation chapter 3. I want you to remember those things as we read because it will help us understand why Jesus used the terminology, the words that he used to be able to communicate to this group of people at this time period what he wanted to tell them. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14, he says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, I don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. 
verse 22, he says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord Jesus, I pray those who have ears to hear that we would hear what the Spirit says to us today. What it is that learning from a, from a church some 2,000 years ago, what, what it is that we can apply to our own church today in 2019, what it is that we can apply to our own lives and our own walk with you, Jesus, what would you undo in us? What would you undo in this church as you would in Laodicea? And so, Jesus, I pray that you would, you would just reign su- supreme in this place. Lord, I pray that we would open up our hearts and our lives and our minds to be able to receive that which you want to speak to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So the question is, what would Jesus undo? What would he undo? What is Jesus communicating to Laodicea about what he wants to undo? And today I want to talk to you about this topic. Um, it's a word, and the word is this. Meh. 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 That's the word. Meh. Meh is the universal symbol of indifference by texters and people on social media alike. Meh is the emoji of uh, two eyes and a straight mouth. That's meh. Like, I, I could care less. I'm neither happy nor sad about it. I'm indifferent. I'm apathetic towards it. You know, I, I, don't, I don't really care one, one way or the other. And if you have a middle schooler or a high schooler, you'll know what I'm talking about. If, you had a, if you've had a conversation with a middle schooler or a, or a high schooler, you will have heard this word. You may have not thought that it was actual word, but it's a true, real word. And, and this is what it sounds like so that you, I'll put it in context to so those of you who are like, what is this young and talking about? Right, okay, here's it goes. So the first one, he goes like this. Hey, uh, you know, Billy, how was school today? Meh. You know what I'm talking about now. You're all like, oh, I heard that. Yes. Hey, Susie, uh, how was the sleepover? Eh. Hey, Reginald. I don't know why I said it. Hey, Hey, Reginald. I'm sorry if your name is Reginald. Hey, Reginald, how was skydiving? Meh. Meh. Kind of sound like a sheep. Meh. Everyone, go with me. One, two, three. Meh. Yeah, you sound like sheep. You may have thought that it was a guttural noise or a burp. From, from someone, but it actually is a word. In uh, 2015, it was adopted into the English or Oxford English Dictionary, so it's a legit word. M-E-H is a word. It's, not, it's an expression, right? It's actually in Scrabble Dictionary, so if you play words with friends, booyah. Um, <laughs> mad defined as this. Mad is this. An expression used to show indifference, apathy, or boredom. And Jesus is addressing the church in Laodicea and saying, hey guys, y'all got a, spiritual, a bunch of spiritual meh. And it makes me sick. That's essentially what he's telling them in a nutshell. Verse 15, he says, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were just one or the other, but instead you're meh. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Another way of saying vomit or projectile. This is not like a, this is like a, you're going someplace quick, okay? You understand what I'm talking about? I am about to vomit you out of my mouth is what he says. What would Jesus undo in this church? I'll tell you what he would undo. He would undo their meh towards God. Their spiritual apathy. That's what he would undo in them. 
Now, if you saw the church in Laodicea, I mean, you probably would think, man, this is a pretty healthy church. It's a large church, got beautiful building, they got lots of money, no need for anything. It's pretty lavish. I mean, this church must be kicking. Like, this is awesome. And they might, they might have like looked like a thriving church that we would, you know, judge by today. So by outward signs, they were blessed by God. But what was the problem? Their pockets were full, but their hearts were empty. They, 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 had, they had sight and, and health care, but they were blind when it came to spiritual matters. And Jesus says, I'm, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth, which is not good, in case you're wondering. Like, that's not a good thing. You wouldn't want Jesus to do that. And then Jesus goes and he outlines two causes of this spiritual meh. This is what he says, verse 17. You say, I am rich, and that I have acquired wealth, and I don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. What was Jesus actually calling them out on? He was saying, you think that you don't need me. You think you've got everything that you need, and you're actually missing what matters most. Essentially, the first cause to spiritual meh is self-sufficiency. It's this illusion that we have that we can, I fall into, that we can fall into. And if I'm really honest, that uh, as, as an American Christian, I can tend to think just like this. Now, I would never tell anybody out loud, so don't tell anybody. But like, there are things that go through my mind that look a whole lot like this Laodicean church. Things like this. Well, I don't need to really bother God with my stuff. I mean, like, he's got bigger things to worry about. Have you not said that? Oh, I, you know what? I mean, my stuff is just small. He's got to worry about like world peace and like hunger and all these types of things. I don't want to bother him with my stuff. Or, or if I'm really, really honest, look, God, as long as you keepeth my Wi-Fi fast, I haveth all that I needeth. Like, it's like just the first world problem of like, if you just give me Wi-Fi, I'm really good. I mean, I, I, I'll fend for myself, but just don't take away my internet. And so uh, we'll say things like, well, I have more than I need. Like, I don't need, to, I don't need anything more from God. Hashtag blessed. Like, everything is so, so good in my life right now. And because, because money seems to be the solution that we think that we need or that we have, once we get some of it, we, get up, get, we end up getting numbed into a place of self-sufficiency. As long as I have more money, as long as I have these things and these things in place, I, I'm, I'm really self-sufficient. I don't need more from God. But the Bible says that self-sufficiency is an illusion. You can tend to think that we have all the things that we need. I, I, I'm rich and I have everything that I need. I don't really want to bother God. But Jesus has some other things to say about that. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, John writes this. He says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. That's rough. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. And so John is saying, hey guys, you can surround yourself with all kinds of stuff and still be spiritually bankrupt. You can have all kinds of blessings in your life and have all kinds of riches and everything seems to be going well and still be empty on the inside of you. And Jesus is saying to the Laodiceans, hey guys, you don't need more money, you need more of me. 
you, 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 you think you've got everything that you need, but you're missing what matters most. You think that you're rich. This is what he says, and you have no needs, but you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And what's interesting to me is that I can look at the American church today, and most people feel like they need more money, but they have just enough of God. I mean, I wouldn't turn down a raise. I wouldn't turn down some more money. I could always use some more money, but, oh, I'm good with God. Like, we're good. Right? Thanks. You just keep that money coming, Jesus, and I don't really need much more from you. We're good. And if I'm really honest, I rarely ask this question. Jesus, what's the minimum amount of money that I need to have? When I say rarely, like very rarely have I asked that question. But I wondered this. Jesus, what's the minimum amount of you that I need to get by? I mean, I've wondered it. Never actually thought it. Just wondered it. Jesus says, you think you have everything that you need, but you're actually missing what matters most. He's saying self-sufficiency is an illusion. And the second reason, the cause for spiritual, eh, is this, distractions of, the, of this world. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus tells a parable, and many of you have heard it before, if you've ever been to Sunday school, where the sower goes out, the farmer goes out, and he sows seed. And he's just kind of willy-nilly with this. It always bothers me. Like, but he goes and he throws some seed, and some of it falls on the path, and, and, it, and it hits the path, and the birds come, and they eat it up. And some of them, you know, he throws, and it falls into the rocky soil, and it tries to grow up, and then it can't grow roots, so it just withers in the sun and dies. And then some he throws over in the weeds, and, and it, it grows up, and then it ends up getting choked out by all the weeds around it. And then some of it... Some of it throws and it gets into the good soil and it, and it grows and it produces fruit and a great crop and all of these things. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to me <laughs> that Jesus was telling the Laodiceans essentially this. You all are, are thorny soil. You're weedy soil. Catch what he says when, when he's talking to his disciples in Mark chapter 4 verse 19. He's describing what the thorny soil is. He says, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. The church in Laodicea had started out good. They, had, they, you know, they, got, they just got sidetracked. They got sidetracked by all the riches, the entertainment, all the amenities and materialism of the culture that they lived in and thought, you know what? I am good. I mean, thank you, Jesus, but I, I'm, I'm good. I, I really don't need anything from you. And here's what freaks me out. They were lukewarm, and they probably didn't even know it. Like, like my guess is this. I don't know this. This is just me talking and thinking through this. My guess is that when they read this or when their pastor read this letter to them, I think they were completely blown away. I think when, when he was going through all of the different letters and they're, okay, this is, what, this is what the Spirit of the Lord said to Sardis and to Smyrna and to all this. And they're like, oh, let's get to us. Let's get Because it is about me. I hope they got a word for us. And so they go and he starts reading the church of Laodicea. And he starts going through it. And they're like, wait a minute. He didn't even have anything nice to say to us. All he does is just address this. I think they were completely 
blown away. I don't think they expected it. And I don't think that they're, that they're evil. I just think that they were distracted. But I don't think that they expected it. I think that they were lukewarm and they didn't even really realize it. And see, it's tempting for me to read like Revelation chapter 3 and about the Laodiceans and be like, y'all are like, y'all need to wake up. Like you're a bunch of lazy bums, lukewarm. Like, come on, get serious about Jesus. Like you either be cold or hot, but like, come on, like let's do something here. And it's really tempting for me to read the parable of the sower and like going out and thinking like, God, thank you so much that I am the good soil. Not like this idiot next to me. Like, my, he's a rock. I mean, come on, look at this guy. Have you seen him? I mean, keep looking at him. Don't look at me. Look at him. Like, because literally, I'm, God, thank you so much that I'm the good soil. But one of the markers of spiritual maturity is the ability to be able to truly, truthfully evaluate yourself. And this is what I would say to the Laodiceans and what I'd say to myself and to you. Do not assume that you are good soil. What are you saying, Pastor Justin? I'm saying, do not assume that you are the good soil. Because we've all been around enough to see people that have risen up and then died because they didn't, they didn't put their roots down. They jumped from church to church to church thinking, I'm not getting fed here, I'm not getting fed here, I'm not getting fed here. But the only way we grow is to put down our roots. Do not assume that you're the good soil. Because God measures our heart. It's actually our responsibility to make sure that our heart is good soil. For some of you, it's, it's weeding out the junk, the stuff that's actually choking out God in your life. For some of you, it's actually going through and removing the rocks so that you have some good soil that God's word can get down in. So you're surrounding yourself with people that love you, that are caring for you, that are, that are literally encouraging you to follow God and his word. And for some of you, you just need to start tilling stuff up. It's hard. It's been hard for a long time. It's this shallow soil. It only goes this deep. But do not assume that you are the good soil. Spiritual maturity asks this question. I, I put a couple questions down for you. The first one was this. What are some things in my life that are choking out you and your word? Jesus what are some things in my life that are choking you out? And secondly, Jesus, what would you undo in my life so that I can, go, I can grow to look and become more like you? Jesus, what would you undo in me so that I can grow and look more like you? Um, in your notes, I've got five different uh, kind of qualities of, uh, of a lukewarm person. And I want to run through these quickly. You've got them in your notes. I'm, I'm not going to make a lot of friends with these five, but um, let's go through these. The first one is this. A lukewarm person is more concerned with impressing people than living for God. A lukewarm person cares more about what people think of their actions than what God thinks of their heart. They look good on the outside, but aren't necessarily doing anything on the inside of growing towards Jesus. Luke chapter 6, verse 26, Jesus says, Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. Catch that. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. For that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. 
See, lukewarm people don't, don't really uh, want to be saved from their sin. They just want to be saved from the penalty of their sin. There's a difference. Lukewarm people don't really hate their sin. They just hate the fact that they're going to be punished for it. There's a big difference there. And so the second one is this. I'll move on. Lukewarm people tend to choose what's popular over what is right. Lukewarm people tend to choose what is popular over what's right. So they try to fit into both inside and outside the church. A lukewarm person uh, will probably drink and swear a little bit less than an unbeliever, but they make their decisions very similarly. They don't really look that much different. And this is the kind of takeaway from this one, is that a lukewarm person equates their partially sanitized life with holiness. In other words, well, I, I'm, not as, I'm not as good as this radical, but I'm, I'm not as bad as, as, as this Yahoo. And so I have this kind of like mostly Christian attitude. And so my partially sanitized life is holiness. And you start to equate those two, thinking that one is the other and they're not. The third one is, is this. A lukewarm person only turns to God when they need him. So in other words, like, I don't really want to bother Jesus with all my stuff. Like, I'm, I'm good. Like, you just do your God thing up on this throne, whatever you do with the angels. And like, I, but I don't want to have, you got a lot of other things to go until something happens, until our health goes, until we need money. And then all of a sudden, like, oh, Jesus, ah, we start talking in old English, like, and Jesus, I needeth you. You know what I mean? All of a sudden, we get real serious about our relationship with Jesus Christ. Because why? We got, we got 99 problems. Usually, but when you lose your health, you have one problem. And all of a sudden, that one problem is bigger than what you can handle, and you cry out to Jesus as if you got nothing left. Lukewarm people only cry out to God when they need Him. Lukewarm don't want to, lukewarm people don't want to feel like they're needy. I don't want to, I don't want to seem needy to God, but it comes more out of pride than it does humility. That made some friends. I'll keep moving. Okay, um, the fourth one is this. Lukewarm people are moved, are moved by stories about people who do radical things for Jesus, yet they do not act. You ever been there? Man, can you believe I heard this story? I read this book, and man, you, you, like, you hear what's going on over in, you know, in India and Nigeria? Did you hear that testimony of what God did with somebody stepping out and somebody's leg grew? Oh my gosh, you can't even believe this. Like, did you hear all these things? Yeah, wasn't that amazing? Wow, God, praise God. And yet they do not act. In other words, these radical, extreme stories are for like extreme radical Christians, not for average ones like you and me. They're for missionaries and preachers and pastors, and, but they're not for me. Like that's not, that's not what I'm about. See, lukewarm people call radical what Jesus seems to expect of all of his followers. My question for a lukewarm person would be this. What would it look like if you read the Bible, believed it, and acted on it? Would your life look any different? What would it look like if you read the Bible, believed it, and acted on it? I'll keep, last one. Thanks for holding in with me. Number five, lukewarm person uh, gauges their morality or goodness by comparing themselves to the world around them. 
This is kind of where you're like, man, I'm like, I may not be as hot and, and as radical as sister so-and-so. Uh, I don't really want to. And, but I'm much better than this guy down the street like, who, who seems to be a wreck. I'm in, I'm in no way as horrible as him. And somehow we, we kind of can feel like we're, we're, we're better than that. Like, just focus on this guy. If you would smite him, almighty smiter. No, no, actually don't, because if you smite him, then I got no one to compare myself to. So keep him around. Keep him there. And we fail to realize, just like the Laodiceans, that even though I may be better than the person next to me, even though I may do more good things to the person next to me, I'm still wretched, poor, pitiful, blind, and naked without God. That's what he says. You don't get to compare. That's not how God judges. He judges the heart. So what would Jesus undo? He would undo spiritual meh. He seems to be a whole lot more passionate about this topic than, than we are. In fact, spiritual, meh, doesn't just break his heart, it turns his stomach. He's really serious about this. And as I've been reading through this past week and this, this whole portion of scripture about the, the Laodicean church, I, I have to ask this question, and I, and I want you to wrestle with this question as, with me as well, is that, is there such a thing as a lukewarm Christian? Is that even a thing? I've been saying lukewarm person and people intentionally because of this question, is there such a thing as a lukewarm Christian? Because even that phrase, lukewarm Christian, I don't see it in, in Scripture. And Jesus, his description, this is what he says about the Laodiceans. He says, you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. He says, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth because you're lukewarm. I don't see that as a description of a believer or a Christian anywhere in Scripture. I've never seen that. And we certainly don't sing songs like that. I once was lost, but now I'm lost. Was blind, but now I'm blind. Right? We don't sing that. So I have to, I wonder, I, I wrestle with this this week. I'm like, is this even a thing? Or is this thing that we just kind of made up to kind of make ourselves feel a little bit better? Is there such a thing as this? And I don't mean this to scare you, but, but, I, but I do mean this to say, like, if you're in a place of apathy, boredom, indifference towards God right now, I would just say this. Could it be that there is nothing more important than getting this figured out? Based upon the word of God, based upon how serious Jesus is about this. Because, I mean, the Laodiceans were a church full of people that thought that they were all right, and they obviously were not. They weren't. They had essentially deceived themselves. Which is, I think, why Jesus' message to them was essentially this. Hey, guys, stop kidding yourselves. You may have gotten used to your water. I'm telling you, it's putrid. Okay, like you, 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 may, you, you may have everything that you need and be rich and wealthy and have all of these blessings, but I'm telling you, none of these riches will gain you entrance into heaven. None of it. The things that you're holding on to, the things that you think are, are, are actually blessings, none of them will get you into heaven. <laughs> so, how do we reignite a fire on the inside of us? If you're in this place, maybe you're in this place today where you're like, you know what, like I can relate to these Laodiceans. Like I feel like I'm just kind of in this place of spiritual apathy or boredom and like 
I just don't know exactly what it is that, that I'm supposed to be doing right now as a believer, as a Christian. I want to give you just a couple things really quick. The first one, it's not in your notes, and it's just something the Lord has been beating me up with for the past week. And it is this. Be thankful for what he has saved you from. I'm going to be really just real, more real than I normally am with you. I'm going to be really honest. Um, I got a Facebook notification this week, and you're like, oh, this is going to be a good one. Now, here's the reality. I got a Facebook notification, and it was one of those things, and you get them if you're on Facebook, where it says, like, you know, on this day, three years ago, you know, and then it's a, your, your post, and you get to see what you did three years ago. This one said this, on this day, five years ago, you posted, and then it was a picture. And it was a picture of of my Toyota Prius, um, literally twisted and crumpled to look like a, uh, a ball of aluminum foil. <laughs> and um, many of you maybe not know, and if you're new around here, about five years ago, my, me and my family of four, we were in a, a horrific car accident, 35 car pile up, and, and an 18-wheeler literally just rolled over, drove through the entire driver's side of our vehicle. Um, my point is this, there's no logical, rational uh, wh- reason that I still have all of my family with me. I, I, if you saw a picture of this, um, you, you would be like, I don't, even, I don't even know what the front of the car or the back of the car is, it's, it's totaled. Um, let alone the fact that none of us have long-lasting disabilities because of it. Um, and it's in those moments, if you've ever had moments like this, where um, you, you, everything comes into, it goes slow-mo. Like everything goes slow-mo in those moments. And everything that is truly important in life comes into focus. And I'll tell you what goes out of, the, out of focus. All the stupid junk that I think is important. I tell you what I wasn't thinking about when all of this stuff was coming and I heard a tractor-trailer truck coming up. I wasn't thinking, did I switch out the laundry? Did I pay that bill? Oh, shoot. Oh, oh God, I wish that. Yeah. No. Everything that's truly important comes directly into focus and it's the only thought that you have. So as I got this reminder on Facebook this past week, um, Five years ago today, my first thought was, God, thank you so much. Thank you so much for saving my family. I mean, it's an absolute miracle. And my second thought was, when was the last time I really thought about that? Honestly. When was the last time that I really, like, just stopped and just thanked him? Like, really? That was my second thought that went through my head. Did I really need Facebook to remind me, is my question. Did I really need that? Yeah. Because it's really easy to remember the, just some of, the, uh, some of the other things in our life, but when God intervenes and does something major in our life, I'm telling you, I don't know if it's, if it's Satan or what, but those things are just really hard to find sometimes. And I just want to encourage you, if you're finding yourself in a place of apathy, boredom, or just like, yeah, I just, meh. How's your relationship with Jesus? Meh. I just want to encourage you. Maybe you need to write it down. Maybe you need to go through, put that sucker in your Bible, or maybe in some other place that you're actually going to read it, and say, you know what? 
I am so thankful for all of these things that you've brought me through. Jesus, God, I, 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 I literally have no, no other recourse other than thankfulness to you, Jesus, for what you've done. And if you want to reignite a fire in your soul, then slow down enough to thank him for what he saved you from. And the second thing is this. Do something that requires faith every day. It doesn't have to be big. You don't have to go to Zimbabwe every day to be a missionary. You don't have to sell everything you own every day to, to, be, to, to, to Jesus. Just do something every day that requires faith. Because lukewarm people are continually concerned with playing it safe. Well, like, I, I just don't want to really take a risk, right? And so safe living keeps us from risking. Even being in a place of plenty, a place of being rich, a place of having more than enough can keep us in a place of not risking or taking God-sized risks for Jesus. And here's the problem that we run into, and I'm going to step on your toes this morning. I might crush a couple toes this morning to some of you that have been Christians for a long time. By a long time, I mean more than like a couple years. Here's the problem, is that sometimes somebody else's risk is actually our safe. Let me, let me, let me stop a little further to explain this fully so that you can be fully offended. Um, I want you to be fully offended. Um, so let's say for you, you've been a Christian for a while, and you know that giving is, 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 is God loves a, a cheerful giver, and so you give. Let's say you tithe. You've been a tither in your life. In the beginning, it was, it was a bit of a risk for you to try it, but now it's just a part of your life. Honestly, for some of you, it might just be like, I don't know, I just, it's almost kind of like paying my, my spectrum bill. Like I just, this is what I do. It's a part of my life. Other people look at you and they're like, what are you, are you absolutely out of your mind? How do you even do this? How do you even live like this? I don't, I can't even grasp how, that you would give this amount of money. Like you are nuts. And they see what you do as a risk, but what you do is safe for you. Why? Because it's just a part of your life. And here's what I want to encourage you, is that it's different for every single person. But when was the last time that you really took a God-sized risk? And you think, well, I kind of live within that. No, because sometimes somebody else's risk, when we step into it, now it just becomes safety. It actually becomes lukewarmness unless we choose to say, you know what, Jesus? I am choosing to take a risk outside of my comfort zone because somebody else's risk is actually my safe right now. Other people may look and say, I can't believe, I don't know how, why do you do, how do you, you've got something I, I need, I'm just telling you, when was the last time you took a risk, a God-sized risk that you knew that Jesus was the only one that was going to be able to come and fulfill that thing on the other side of it? Because even as Christians, we can start to live safely, even in faith. So for you, maybe, I don't know for some of you, I don't know what it is, like maybe for some of you it's speaking up to an injustice that you know hurts the heart of God. You've been watching it, watching it, watching it. And I'm not talking about changing your Facebook profile to look like the French flag. I'm talking about actually doing something. Sticking up for someone that desperately needs it. Not just saying I'm going to pray for you, but actually doing something. I don't know, maybe, maybe that is your God-sized risk. I'm just, I'm just saying it's going to be different for every single one of us. Maybe it's risking to pray for someone that you know God is highlighting to you, and yet you're like, I just don't know if I want to look foolish. 
What if they say no? Okay, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? That. What is your God-sized risk? Maybe it's like giving in such a way that it's outside of your comfort zone, whatever that looks like for you. Maybe it's choosing to ask, or, you know, apologize to someone that you hurt. Maybe it's asking forgiveness for someone that, or forgiving somebody that has hurt you, even though they don't deserve it, because none of them do. None of them do. What is it that God's calling you to risk? Next week, we've got some, we're going to have a whole bunch of uh, life group opportunities available. Maybe this, maybe this week, maybe this year is the year that you're going to come out of the shadows and say, you know what? I am choosing to surround myself with people that, that I need in my life to be able to push me and encourage me and prod me and exhort me to become and look more like Jesus. And I want to, I want to come out of the shadows this year. Or praying for something that is beyond what you can manage or that you can come up with. What is it that God's calling you to? I love how in the New Living Translation in verse 19, it says, I correct and discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. You want to know how to turn from indifference? Do something different. If you want to turn from indifference, choose to do something different. Why don't you stand with me? Jesus uh, continues with one of the most famous verses. In verse 20, he says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. And what hits me is that it sounds like he's not inside yet. Right? He's still outside. And my question to you this morning is, where is Jesus with you this morning? Have you invited him in to come in to be a part of your life? Or is he outside knocking on the door of your heart? For me, this is kind of how I grew up. I grew up thinking that I was a Christian. I believed in Jesus. I didn't want him to smite me. So I went to church hoping that I would still be able to like gain entrance into heaven. And it wasn't until I invited him into my life and invited him into my heart that he truly transformed my life and turned it upside down. And so I don't want to make any assumptions today. But if you're at this place where like maybe this God-sized risk for you is like for the first time. You've been coming to church, been doing these things. Maybe this is your first Sunday here, but you're like, I'm going to take a God-sized risk and trust him with me, with my life. And invite him in as he's knocking on the door of my heart. He doesn't want you to just be a nice person and be moral. He wants you to be a new person, a new creation in Christ. And so as we, as we end with this last song today, maybe that's you today. Maybe you're in this place where you're like, you know what? I, I, I know that I know I believe in Jesus. I believe that he was the son of God and all those things. But I don't know what you're talking about. Like I don't know what it looks like to, to have a changed heart and a changed life and a changed mind. So maybe for me today, it's taking that step forward and saying, Jesus, I need you in my life today. For some of you, maybe it's you've got issues going on in your finances or things that are just allow, allow somebody to be able to come alongside and pray God into your situation today. And so as we, as we enter into worship, this last worship song, I just want to encourage you, what risk is God calling you to today? What risk outside of your comfort zone is Jesus saying, God, I, you, you, you need to start moving forward in this instead of holding back in your lukewarmness? So Jesus, I pray right now that you would draw each and every single person to yourself. Lord Jesus, as we enter into this time of worship, I pray that you would mobilize us to even just take that step outside. It may seem like it's, uh, like it's a risk for us to take a step out, but Lord, I pray that you would meet us at this place. 
And so even as I pray, God, I pray that you would, you would start bringing people to yourself, draw them to you. We thank you in Jesus' name.